in this covenant relationship that we have with God, he not only initiates it, but he takes on all of the curse. from the classroom of Heidelberg Theological Seminary, and uh, I'm Dr. J.P. Mosley. I teach biblical studies, systematic theology here at the seminary, as well as registrar and academic dean. And with me, again, is Dr. Maynard Kerner, president of the seminary, and uh, teaches within the uh, training for ministry, oversees the work in the Philippines, our students in the Philippines, and then as we had a plug in the last week's podcast coming this week's soon to be Africa and beyond, and beyond. Uh, To open this podcast, I'd like to read from the book of Hosea, chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord, His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud, and like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, that your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. And I, and I want to just quickly make one, one comment about verse 7. I'm reading from the New King James uh, translation of the Bible, and it's not a textual variant. It's just uh, there's a different way of translating it. And verse 7 could be translated, but like Adam, they, tra- they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with him. They're like Adam. They transgress the covenant. And that's pretty significant because the subject matter for today's uh, podcast is last week we said, yes, it is a covenant. That what we see is a covenant. But the word covenant is not used there. It is used with Abraham. It is used with Moses. It's used in other places. But then we see it here now, rightly translated, I would argue, rightly translated, but like Adam they transgressed my covenant. So here's a passage that's saying, it seems Adam was in covenant relationship. The issue of whether the covenant was, or the, let me step back just for the sake of discussion here, the relationship that God established with Adam, and clearly we can't deny the fact that God came to Adam and said, okay, now I've created you and here's some things I'm requesting. You're going to, and keep the garden and so on and so there is 
requirements that are set before Adam, particularly, do not eat of the fruit of the, of the, tree, of the, of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that a covenant? Well, the word covenant is not used there. But you, we will find in a number of places of scripture, and I'm not prepared to uh, reference all of them at this moment, but throughout the scripture where there is covenant language, not all of the aspects of covenant are always mentioned. Right. So the covenant is there. And the point is that if it is a relationship that reflects covenantal relationship between God and man, then it's a covenant, whether the word covenant is used or not. And so there's no reason to say there is no covenant. The, the reference in Hosea here might very well be uh, supportive of that notion that it is that, that what God had set up with Adam and made clear to Adam was a covenant relationship. I would go further to say that, that the very understanding of God is that God is a God of covenant. God makes covenant. That's how he, he has a covenant with the, we speak about the uh, the covenant of peace. There's a covenant between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is who God is. He's a God of covenant making. And, and, and he makes covenant with Adam. And well, the thing is, uh, as, as you said, I, I heard it too. Uh, looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, smells like a duck, lays eggs like a duck. But when you cook it, it tastes like a chicken. No, no, it's a duck. It's a duck. Right. And, and that's that's really what we see there in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, let me let me see what you think about this. I heard one author one time say if we could if we could simply understand covenant as God entering into a relationship with a person. And, 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 it, and it's um, a, a, a friendly type of relationship, one that God starts and God wants to be in that relationship. Is that a proper way of saying that's what really a covenant is about? Instead of just saying, okay, a covenant has to be that, you know, it, it has to do, 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 do like this. Because then we can understand a, the, how, and what he's trying to get at, what this particular author was trying to get at is how the ancients, meaning the Old Testament, understood covenant in such a broad way because they understood marriage to be a covenant. They understood business con contracts being a covenant. Well, we see that in Genesis with Isaac and, and the people in the land. They entered into a contract, a covenant. But then it has religious connotations, too, with things like um, Abraham and circumcision. Well, I don't think I have a problem with the idea of, in a very beginning way, to talk about covenant in terms of God establishing or entering into a relationship with man. It is a uh, um, normally, um, covenants would also have with them stipulations, mm -hmm. promises, and threats. Um, not every covenant has all of the same aspects of it. Those are covenantal aspects. The marriage covenant definitely has. <laughs> it has. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the same. If you don't think it does, you will find out yeah. soon. Right. Um, Covenants have signs, but not all the covenants are their signs as dominant as, as others. That's right. But what we do see in the covenant of works that are the covenant in creation there in, in uh, Genesis is that God does give stipulations. Obey me and you and you will have life. 
you will be confirmed in life. Disobey and you shall die. Those are very clear stipulations. Well, and, and I think there's, if you think about, let's say, let's say the, uh, uh, the contract uh, between employee and employer. Oh, there's stipulations there. You do your work, you'll get paid. You fail to do your work, you'll get fired. Um, the same is true even with the contract between government and citizen. There are stipulations there. There's even, I believe, stipulations with a marriage. Sure. And so it, it would seem, even if we sit back and say, if we could use you know, today's terms, what a covenant is, is this group and this group agreeing to this relationship then I think that's, that's, that's fairly good. Now, the, the uniqueness about a covenant with God is that God enters into the, and he gives the, um, he determines who's going to be in the covenant. Mm -hmm. He gives the stipulations. He determines what all the requirements are. And in the covenant of grace, not only does he determine all the requirements in terms of the, the promises and threats, do this, uh, and you shall be paid, or don't do this, and you will not be paid. As you say, a contract with, I, I talk with young people about, yep. they agree to mow their neighbor's lawn. Yep. They're going to get paid. If they don't, they won't get paid, etc. Yep. God promises in the covenant of grace that when I don't get paid, he's going to take care of it. Mm -hmm. So he fulfills the stipulations. So in what sense can there be a covenant breaker? Well, it's somebody who steps outside of the covenant relationship. <clears throat> Israel is given all kinds of laws, not so that they have a way of keeping the covenant. God keeps the covenant for them. But they're living according to God's direction for life ultimately has implications as to whether someone has left completely. You mentioned uh, the, the marriage covenant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you enter a covenant with your wife, and uh, but you never see her, pretty soon there's no marriage. Right. It's not that you have not met all of the precise stipulations, but you think you've, you've stepped outside of the marriage. That's what covenant breaking is about. That's right. One of the, in the, besides what Christ does at the cross, where a new covenant is cut, one of the best pictures of a cutting of a covenant in the Bible I can think of is Genesis 15. Of course. And it very, very real, too. Uh, he cuts those animals. There's the blood path. Very graphic. Very graphic. And, I mean, he's fighting off buzzards. And it seems like this this has happened all day because the buzzards have been attracted. Right. Uh, it reminds me of a baseball game my kids were playing. They were so standstill, the buzzards started circling over top. That was a couple of weeks ago. True story. But here is what's happening in 15. And what's – because you, you asked, well, who's the covenant breaker? Because now we're talking about covenant grace. It's covenant breaker in the covenant grace. Well – I think Genesis 15 gives us the answer because when it's time for God and, and Abram to walk down that blood path, what does God do to Abram? He knocks him out. He does not allow Abram to walk. Abram doesn't walk. God walks it twice. So he takes the curse of Abraham's failing to keep a covenant on himself. It's beautiful. God knew. It's a fantastic picture. God knew. And, I, and, and that's why the cross is so important to them. We, we brought up active obedience last week. Here it is again. Even in Genesis 15, 
we're seeing the reality that God knew. The next chapter, here comes Hagar. <laughs> it's the next chapter, Abram. We don't get you don't get far, and all of a sudden Sarah has a bright idea. Well, why don't you, you know, why don't you have my maid over here? You know, don't you have her and we'll have a child through her? Okay. You know, I, I, I think of Abram at that moment as a typical millennial. I'm a millennial, but I'm not a typical. But Abraham's like, well, okay. And then all of a sudden, well, it was your idea. Now, he doesn't say, I mean, right? But there, it's the next chapter we already see Abram breaking covenant. Breaking covenant with Sarai, breaking covenant with God. There's a lot of interesting things that, that go on. And, oh, yeah. We could talk about at but length. But the, the issue is God knew Abram couldn't keep it. And I think the same is true when there's the establishment of the covenant of Israel at Mount Sinai. God knew Israel couldn't keep it. And that's why there's the blood path there too. That's why God says, I'm going to do this. So when you come into the land, I'm going to be the one to do X, Y, and Z. When it's, I'm going, you know, God's telling them, this is what I'm going to do. And then when you get into Deuteronomy, look, not, your shoes haven't worn out. Your clothes haven't got, don't have holes in them. 40 years you've been wondering. God's taking care of you for these 40 years he's got you. Uh, that gets back to the perseverance of saints that we talked about last week. It's, it's, it is that important to get this, this doctrine of covenant, both of works and of grace, to properly understand the fact that in this covenant relationship that we have with God, he not only initiates it, but he takes on all of the curse. I just love the way that is pictured for us in the first chapter of Joshua. God encourages Joshua. Joshua is about to take on as the leader of the army of Israel. They're about to take on an impossible task. Mm -hmm. they're, into, they, they're a rabble. They have no biblical training. They're going to enter into a, a land of, of very established, powerful nations. Yeah. And God encourages Joshua and says, be courageous. Oh, yeah. you got to be strong. you got to be a powerful man. And he says, and by the way, I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, isn't that something? Yeah. If you're about to do something and somebody else comes along and says, I'm going to give it to you, we're probably going to sit back and be lazy and say, I don't have to do anything. It's, it's like, you, you, you know you know the end result of the College World Series. <laughs> Go out there. Play hard. Play hard. But I'm going to get the win for you. Wait, wait. Do I still have to go out there and play hard? Yes. So there you see the covenant of grace that God brought children of Israel into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven. That's right. And, uh, and yet God at the same time says, you are not confrontators. Mm -hmm. You're not puppets on the string. Mm -hmm. uh, you demonstrate your, your faith in your position in the covenant. And eventually when they, with their life, demonstrated that they had turned away from God, yes, that covenant relationship is ended because it wasn't really with them. They weren't in the covenant. It's not that they didn't keep the law well enough. They're not keeping the law demonstrated what their relationship, their faith with God really was. The moment they started doing whatever was right in their own eyes right. showed they weren't in it. It's a, it's a fine line to distinguish between our moral life in terms of doing something which 
helps my stand with God or doing something which is a result of my stand with God. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, continuing with that line of thought there, one of the stereotypes of a Reformed theology is you guys put so much weight on the sovereignty of God. What's man responsible for now? Well, you just described it. Yeah. Joshua 1 describes it. The, the whole Bible describes it. We're, we're not saying man doesn't have responsibility to obey the command to repent. And we're not saying there's no consequences to failure. That's right. Um, but what we're saying is the person who's going to believe is going to believe because God said so. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it to you. You still have to repent. You still have to believe. As I tell my kids, and I've, I've told you know churches, I can't do it for you. You still have to do this. That's the responsibility part of the of it. But then there's the reality of the only way you can is because God's providing for you, and the way God works that out, the way God keeps us faithful. It's to put before us the reality of the consequences of sin mm. and the reality of consequences of obeying his law. Mm. So there is that constant, yes, from the pulpit, you mentioned that, talking to people in the church and so on and for ourselves. We need to be reminded from God's, from the scriptures that this lifestyle over here has serious consequences. Mm. I need to stay away from that. But it has nothing to do with whether I'm going to get, get to heaven or not. Mm-hmm. My getting to heaven has to do with, am I in God's covenant. Mm-hmm. And, is he, and is he keeping me in this? So bring it home a little bit more. Moralistic preaching. Exemplaristic preaching. is anti-gospel preaching. It's anti-gospel preaching. But it makes that horizontal, how you're doing here, a prerequisite for how you're going to get up there. Yeah. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and that's the danger. Is we're not, we, don't, we don't recognize the be strong and courageous. The only way you're going to be able to be strong and courageous is because that second Right. God says, I'm giving it to you. Yeah. Man, if I knew I was going to win this game, I'd get out there and tear every base. I'm gone. I'm, hey, I'm going to run like I've already won. Absolutely. I'm not going to celebrate a party like I've already won. No, I'm going to act like I've been here before. But I'm going to run like I've won, I've won it. It's, just like it's you, confidence. You will remember um, my sermon this past Sunday. Mm-hmm. God said, I'm going to save all these people. That doesn't make us lazy and say, well, then I don't have to go witness to my neighbor. It right. gets me excited that I want to witness to my neighbor right. because God is right. going to be the, the author of salvation. If God says there are still people that need to be saved, and I turn around and sit on my hands, I've not listened to God when he says there's people that still need to be saved. Nor have I even really understood how it is that he saved me. That's right. That's right. It gets back to, and this is this is not a cheesy little plug. Those that listen need to be in church on Sunday. Absolutely. Not only is that where you get your marching orders, be strong and courageous, but that's where you get the God who grabs your shoulders and says, I've got you. That's where God keeps you courageous. That's right. That's right. Well, once again, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of From the Classroom of Heidelberg Theological Seminary. You can like us on Facebook. Instagram, uh, YouTube, Sermon Audio. That's several ways that you can follow us. You can go to 
HowardSeminary.org, hit the you know, and continue to follow the blog articles that are on there and see what's going on the, in the seminary. But importantly, you can also support us with financial giving. Become a patron of the seminary. Uh, various ways to do that, and one of those ways is to go to the website there and follow the support us. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.